Hey, this is Elevation Gains Podcast. I'm Jim, an avid backpacker and hiker from Reno, Nevada. I'm Holly, a coach and weightlifter. I own a strength gym in Oakland, California. And on this podcast, we attempt to break down some of the barriers that keep people from enjoying the backcountry. Welcome to episode two. You may have noticed some changes to the podcast. Uh, We decided to change our name. And the reason behind that is kind of multi-layered. So we're going to chat about that just a little bit. We didn't think the name fully represented what the podcast was about. It was a little somber too. Definitely. Yeah. It felt a little dark. It felt a little serious. Um, The other reason that we changed the podcast name was, so it was pulled from a John Muir quote and we got some feedback that using John Muir in any capacity made some people feel uncomfortable or excluded. Right. And we had some hesitation about using a quote from John Muir in the beginning, but We went forward with it because we liked the quote, but it still didn't quite feel right. And we didn't really feel great about it. So when we heard this feedback, we immediately took a step back. Yeah, absolutely. And kind of reevaluated, you know, what we wanted the podcast to be about, what we wanted it to feel like when someone was listening to it. And although the specific piece that the quote was pulled from is a admittedly beautiful piece of writing. Other writing from John Muir is, I mean, it's just flat out racist. I, I can't put it any other direction. And he, he had a lot of really disparaging things to say, especially about indigenous folks. And honestly, we should have, we should have thought it through a little better. And, and in the beginning, I mean, I don't want to go too far down what we could have done, um, but I think that on a podcast where a huge part of why we're doing this is inclusiveness in the outdoors and to have anybody, especially somebody of indigenous background, feel excluded because of something as silly as a name is just absolutely unacceptable, right? So we're... We changed it, and after throwing around some really hilarious names, I'm, I'm circling back to walking in squirrel country, um, we landed on one that feels very us. Yeah, and I think uh, everything from, from the new thumbnail design to the feel of the new name more accurately represents what we were trying to do with this podcast from the beginning. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And it's funny because uh, at first I definitely had like the, oh, um, like a little bit of a concern, a little bit of defensiveness, a little bit of all the feelings that you get when you have any critique that happens. And now that we we worked through it all, we discussed it all, on the back end, I'm like really, really grateful for this feedback because one, I don't want anybody to feel excluded. And two, I just love this name and that and that thumbnail so much more. It's fun and it's much more us. Agreed. Yeah, it's definitely more representative of what this pod is supposed to be. I think 
it's way less serious. It's, it's a little bit silly. Um, and so are we. So I think that's perfect. Exactly. So episode two, we start out talking about different training strategies for getting onto the trail. And I was a little surprised by this. I honestly thought you and I were going to be more on opposite ends. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we end talking about um, one aspect of trail etiquette, I guess, like the interactions between uh, men and women who do not know each other on the trail. And I think, although they're not necessarily the same conversation, it flowed together really nice and I enjoyed the conversation and I think it's a great episode. Yeah, I really love this episode. I thought it was such a fun conversation to talk about the difference between your trail training and my uh, less trail and a lot more gym training and the overlap between those and the benefits and the pros and cons. And it was really, really fun. Yeah, so let's, uh, let's stop talking about this and let people listen to the episode. Yeah, I can't wait to hear what you guys think. Hello, and welcome to episode two. My name is Jim, and I'm here with co-host Holly. How you doing, Holly? And what have you been up to lately? So it feels like lately, all of my adventures have been trying to get down as far as possible, as opposed to up, which is a really strange turn of events. Um, I spent yesterday free diving Monterey, uh, Monterey Bay, so various parts of the Monterey Bay. Um, and free diving and paddleboarding have kind of been like the adventures I've been on lately. Part of that is because smoke closed down a lot of our forests and also made it a lot less accessible to be in those forests that are open. Um, and part of it is just because I've been like really obsessed with the ocean. Um, lately, I got access to it in February and it's a wilderness that like I just didn't even really know was there because I was too afraid to explore it. Um, so I've been trying to, um, anti-summit, I suppose. What have you been up to? Oh, so, wait, I have questions about the food <laughs> editing real quick before we, before we move on to, to my silliness. Um, so in the last episode you talked about, you had free dived primarily in like Alpine lakes. Right, right, right. And then, and then in warm water ocean. Right. And I, I forget where, but. Yeah, Honduras, uh, Honduras exclusively uh, up until the Alpine lakes. Okay, and so Honduras's oceans are probably considerably warmer than the Pacific off Monterey Bay. Yeah, they're like completely different creatures. Uh, uh, Honduras is the Caribbean. Um, it is water that feels like you're in a sensory deprivation tank because you don't know where your skin ends and the water begins. So, talk a little bit about the difference between free diving. In, in like an ocean that's warm water, like bath water temperature and in the Monterey Bay. Cause I've, I've been, you know, near the Monterey Bay. I've never been physically in the water there, but I've seen it and yeah. it looks fucking cold. It's fucking cold. Oh my God. It's so fucking cold. Okay. So um, we went Wednesday uh, as our first ever time in the water. And then we went back on Saturday, um, which was our anniversary celebration or whatever. Um, my partner and I, 
Uh, and on Wednesday, it was like sunny and warm. And it was a totally different experience because the surface of the ocean, at least, was really a lot warmer. And you're still wearing a wetsuit. I'm wearing wetsuits at uh, three, four uh, millimeter. And I'm wearing four millimeter booties. Uh, and I'm going to get a hood as soon as it comes in the mail because I ordered it Wednesday. Um, but my whole body is covered in neoprene. Okay, so for, for people who maybe don't know a lot about wetsuits, what does that three and four equate to? Like, is that like, is that like a heavy down jacket or is that like a lightweight hoodie or like where, where does that fall in the warmth range? Um, so I'm so glad that you asked that question because up until a couple of weeks ago, I really knew shit about wetsuits. Um, I had gone surfing a couple of times in San Francisco with friends. They handed me a wetsuit. I was cold the whole day, but it was fine. Um, and that was it. Right. Um, and when, uh, this is going to be a theme of the podcast in general. Uh, all of the things that I want to do are not immediately where I am because I live in a city, a major metropolitan city, and nothing that I like to do is city things, right? Um, except for eat. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, drink coffee, I suppose. Um, but yeah, so uh, so the water here as opposed to all of the places I've dove before is really cold. So I've been exploring this whole wetsuit thing. And uh, a three, four wetsuit um, compares kind of like being uh, in the snow with a very heavy uh, hoodie on. You're definitely aware that it's cold. You're not comfy and warm, but you're also not hypothermic and you're not going to be in a dangerous situation. Okay. That, does that make sense? Yeah, that does make sense. So now the other question I have specific to the Monterey Bay, the water there is fairly murky. Like it's not crystal clear Caribbean water and it's certainly not, you know, Alpine Lake clear. So like how much can you actually see when you're free diving in water that's essentially green? So little. Um your questions are like perfect uh, because these are like the biggest issues with this entire um, experience. Like diving in cold water is a, is a totally different experience in every single way. So um, when you're in cold water, uh, breath holds are cut by 40 to 60%. Um, the first three to four minutes of me being in the water on Saturday the only thing I could hear, which is worth a lot because I was near a sea lion colony, um, was my hyperventilation into my snorkel. Like it was so cold that I was like, <sighs> like trying to keep my body warm. Um, and it's, it's kind of an intense situation. Um, and then at the same time, up until February of 2021, this year, I was terrified of the ocean. So now I'm in freezing cold water with very large swells and I cannot see past about four to eight feet, eight feet when the sun is out. Um, and that is if you're not in the kelp. When you're in the kelp forest, it's intensely claustrophobic. It's much more of a safe, physical, like actual non-emotional and mental reaction safe because none of the large animals go into the kelp forest. So you're not going to have uh, jellyfishes that I know of. You're also not going to have sharks, which are a very significant threat here. Um, and any other large creature, you're not even really going to get sea lions. You're going to get harbor seals. And then if you surface in the wrong place, it's very likely an otter might bite your face. But... Um, <laughs> 
like they're cute, but they're vicious. Um, but yeah, so uh, the, an otter is really the biggest threat to you in a kelp forest. So it's stressful because you can't see and there's tons of things touching your body everywhere. Um, and sometimes you can't bring your head up because the, the kelp is all around your face, but there's not actually anything to be afraid of. When you're outside of the kelp, there's a lot more to be afraid of, but at least you can see a little bit further. In the kelp, you can often not even see your hands. I love, I love that you described it as a wilderness and that you likened it to, to being in the backcountry, since that is kind of what this podcast is focused on. And I, I had never really thought of the ocean in that regard to me it's just like a completely foreign you know i mean i like i like to wade out to about waist high we go you know we go to pismo beach and i like to go out and watch the surfers and and i can get better photographs if i'm out in the water but there's a nice big shelf there and it only gets up to about my hips and so i can get out in there and get really good pictures um and we spent some time in costa rica and it was kind of a similar situation where it was a shelf and I could get out into the shelf. Um, yeah, but being like completely immersed in ocean water, like sounds horrifying to me. Like, I don't, I don't know if I could do that. So it's really, really, really scary. And, um, and a couple of things. So first one is uh, I didn't really think about this because I grew up in Northern California, but when I was talking to a friend yesterday on our way home, uh, they asked like, why is cold water not clear? And I think that that's really important. So the water in Monterey Bay is so full of nutrients that it's super green, like you said, which is why we have otters and sea lions and harbor seals and whales and all of these animals that you have out there and kelp. Um, but it's really, really full of stuff. So I just kind of wanted to be like, that's why it's so much less clear than the Caribbean, which actually doesn't have very much nutrient value. And that's why all of the life is around the coral. Um, but I like that you you mentioned the um, wilderness, backcountry, and, and freediving because they, I'm so new to it and, and I met it in my adult life that the ocean to me is explored in a terrestrial view. And so, what we do is we take paddle boards out and then we free dive off of our paddle boards, right? Um, because a paddle board is a really stable place to dive off of. I, I have a question about that. How, how do you keep the paddle board in place? Like, like I'm assuming when you free dive, you jump off the paddle board. Yeah. Doesn't the paddle board just go away? Or I mean, how does, how do you facilitate like being, making sure you can get back to your paddle board? So we we're still so we're still uh, problem solving this, and maybe by the time we release this, we'll have enough uh, people listening that if you're a listener and you have a good option, uh, <laughs> because you've done this before, not just random ideas that you have. Um, uh, please let me know. But right now, what we're doing is we're taking turns. So we okay. uh, we link them together with straps, and then one person dives and the other person doesn't. Um, in December, well, in October, actually, in Halloween, we're going to go dive San Diego, and we're trying to go dive with whales in San Diego. Um, and we're also going to try to find whales in Hawaii in December, um, depending on how ethical it feels like to go to Hawaii, because right now it doesn't feel that way, but I've got some months. Um, but uh, when, we, when we're out there doing that, like, say we're in a pod of a thousand dolphins, I'm not going to be like, hey, Brian, you watch the paddle boards. I'm going to go dive with these dolphins. Like, that's just not going to work, right? <laughs> So we've got to find another option. Um, 
in in Monterey, the kelp is actually so thick that you can just leave your paddleboard on top of the kelp and it doesn't move. Um, it kind of like gets stuck in the kelp and it's really hard to move through on a paddleboard as a result, but you can just jump off and it'll stay right there. Um, my only option that I've come up with so far is we have 20 foot, uh, 20 and 30 and 50 foot ropes. And so our plan is just to link the rope to our ankle and then dive. Um, Cause the deepest I've ever dove was 60 feet. I can do about 30 or 40 pretty regularly. So I'd like to have at least like 50 feet. Um, but in the murky water, I don't need more than 20 cause I'm not going that, um, that deep. But um, in terms of looking at the uh, ocean and ocean adventures from a terrestrial standpoint, it's, it's interesting because I, I just see things from, from the land, right? Like I don't see things from a marine standpoint. So for me, what I'm doing is actually coming into a forest from the top as opposed to the bottom. Um, and so like when I'm in a kelp forest, I'm in the canopy and I look at it as I'm trying to get down to where the trails are. And that's what freediving feels like to me. That's crazy. That's, I like that description. Uh, it's still not a thing I'm ever going to do, but I enjoy <laughs> I appreciate the description. <laughs> well, I just bought an extra set of everything and an extra kayak. So if you ever do want to go out to somewhere, um, it might take a flight because I'm not sure I would ever introduce somebody to the water in that circumstance. I think that it's way better when it's warm and safe and comfy and there aren't waves and you can fucking see for a hundred feet. Um, I think that's a much better experience. Or uh, like Tahoe. Yeah. So, I mean, it's freezing cold, but, but that's a place that people do that thing. I've seen people free dive there. It's, yeah, it's freezing cold. I've dove it before. It was amazing. Um, I plan on diving it as soon as I possibly can. And if you're down to free dive some mountain lakes, I would fucking love to bring you up. I'm going to, I'm going to, we're going to put a pin in that. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. Um, okay. So uh, what have you been up to? Cause you just got back from a trip. I did. I just got back from uh, doing a end to end out and back of the Ruby Crest Trail. So I basically did the same through hike twice. Okay. And can you talk a little bit about how you ended up in the Ruby Crest Trail? Because that wasn't a personal choice. No, it wasn't. Um, my original plan was a loop that my buddy Brian and I had decided on that went through a big section of Yosemite Wilderness and then into the Hoover Wilderness. And then they closed all of the national forests in California because of the fires and the smoke and everything. So essentially everything within a reasonable driving distance for me in California was closed. There were, there were some state parks that were open, but part of those trails went through national forest. Um, so just the logistics of trying to figure out, well, what, what forest is this part of the trail in? What forest is this part of the trail in? Just wasn't going to work out. So I went to Eastern Nevada, the Ruby Mountains instead. And that, that area has often been described as kind of like the Yosemite of Nevada and, and things like that. It's got a lot of similar characteristics, which you wouldn't expect, you know, because it's three hours, four hours from Utah's border. So you would expect more like desert and like Canyonlands National Park style. Um, but it's very, 
very familiar and very it feels like you're in the Sierras yeah that's what it looked like yeah from the the, the handful of photos that I've I've put out I don't want to get too into that hike yet um just because I haven't posted the videos yet on my YouTube channel <laughs> so the, the first one actually comes out on Monday the 13th of September will be part okay. one of that video and then um I'm in this weird transition phase with the YouTube channel where I'm trying to find a better day and a better time to post my videos. For okay. the last three years, I've been posting them at like six o'clock in the morning on Tuesdays. And the algorithm on YouTube hates that. Apparently, that's a terrible time to do this. So I'm fishing for a better time slot, basically, to, to start posting them. So part one of the Ruby Crest Trail will come out September 13th. Um, at probably five o'clock in the afternoon. So, but I will say, um, I fucked myself up on this hike. <laughs> I got, I got injured. Okay, okay. I got injured. It was my fault. It wasn't just like a random thing that happens on the trail. Like I made poor choices and I get into that. That's the worst. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's absolutely the worst. Like when you can sit down and look at something, and go, Oh yeah, no, I, this, I, I made this decision and this decision, and this was the end result. And that sucks. Um, so there's going to be the three trip videos. And then I'm going to do like a talking head video step-by-step. Step. This is how I screwed this up. So those will be the kind of the four Ruby crest videos that'll show up on the lost again with Jim YouTube starting Monday, the 13th. Okay. I love that. I love that so much. And it's a perfect segue into our topic today, which is how to train to be on a trail. So we have, you teased this at the end of the last episode, which I fucking loved. Um, and so we have a little bit of a different ethos when it comes to uh, training for adventures. And I think part of that is proximity, but I think part of that is also just experience and ethos. And I'm really excited to kind of flush that out. Yeah. So I'm going to say a thing that I think will kickstart the conversation. And you may or may not agree with this. This may or may not be controversial. It, it feels controversial in my head, if, but I could be totally wrong because I, I have no sense of like social cues in general and so i i don't know maybe maybe you're gonna hear this and go oh you fucking idiot or maybe you're gonna agree with me i don't know um i believe that there are things you can do in the gym that will make hiking easier and i i think that's an inarguable point there are absolutely movements within a gym environment that you can do that make hiking better I also believe that if you only train in a gym specifically for hiking, you're setting yourself up for failure. Oh, I totally agree with that. Oh, wow. See, I totally thought you were going to go, ah, no. Anyway. <laughs> um, I totally agree with that because of the, uh, because of the only, the word only. I think you cannot build the skills that you need to be outside without being outside. You can't read, listen to, uh, talk to people, have like external experiences that aren't being on a fucking trail with that will make you know what it's like to be on a fucking trail. I think even if we just narrow the focus down to just the physical aspects of being on a hike, 
I mean, you can do step ups and step overs and deadlifts and squats all day long. And some of that translates to walking, but nothing can prepare you, in my opinion, for walking on a trail other than walking on a trail, because there, there are so many deviations in terrain, in, in the temperatures that you're dealing with. You know, you, over the course of a 20 mile day, you could start out at, you know, almost overheating, almost, you know, to the point where you're worried about dehydration and end the day in your puffy jacket, worried about hypothermia. And you can't prepare for that in a gym. You, that, that, that experience and, and that level of physical endurance, I think can only be found on the trail. So I think that there's, uh, I think that it's a better to, sorry to repeat myself. I think it's better to look at uh, strength training, gym training, whatever we want to call it as a tool to make you better in instead of your exclusive training for a specific thing, right? There's so many other aspects of being on a trip that you just don't get from the gym. But I will say that on that, on that particular note, it's interesting because my gym is outside. So if I were to train for three hours, the three hours between five, from five to six, six to seven, seven to eight, I would start overheating and I would end a little bit too cold, which is an interesting thing. Um, but I do agree with you. I think that like things like being on a warm trail and then suddenly having it drop 35 degrees and start hailing on you above the tree line. You don't fucking learn about that when you're using dumbbells. You don't learn about what it's like to have your feet filled or your shoes filled up with blood and still walk 10 more miles. You don't learn about that doing squats, right? Like your legs might get stronger so that you can walk faster, but you're not going to learn how to deal with that unless you just fucking do it. And then at the end of it, you realize that your body isn't glass and you're fine, right? And probably remember the whole thing as being an awesome experience. But I think that there's a lot of value in strength training and, and gym-based training. So I'm going to argue my point. Does that feel okay? Yeah, that, definitely. Um, before you get into this, okay. I, I just, for, for your information and, and for the people listening, I haven't stepped foot in a gym or lifted a barbell since COVID started. Yeah. Like not at all. I haven't done any weight training whatsoever since, since the beginning of, I mean, when, God, when, when did COVID closures first start happening? Like March of 2020. Mar so March of 2020. March 13. I'm just not going to say that because I don't know. Right. I'm not going to put it on there. Mar March is probably, March is probably close enough. So from March of 2020 to now September of 2021, I have done zero strength training. In that time frame, I have probably walked three to 400 miles of trail. Oh, I love that. Um, so just uh, as, a, as a side note, I live above my gym. So I spent a lot of time during COVID. <laughs> <laughs> It's like the opposite, um, kind of, except for the fact that nobody was anywhere during COVID. And so I kind of like had this magical experience of being like, 
I can explore any trail at any time of day. It doesn't matter on a Sunday in the middle of a day. I can go on the coolest trails in the Bay Area or the Sierras or whatever. And there's no one here. This is amazing. Um, so that was kind of a funny experience. But you were there. And that's pretty cool. When the pandemic first really hit and and there was a lot of the closures and, and people were really adhering to the guidelines and everything. I, I spent a significant amount of time off trail. Okay. Um, Jim is a way better full, rule follower than me. We just learned that. <laughs> I'm like, yes, everyone's following rules. <laughs> I shouldn't admit that in public. Let's just pretend that didn't happen. So it's kind of twofold. Um, number one, I'm in a high risk group. I have permanent lung damage from a bout of antibiotic resistant pneumonia. So for me, getting COVID was really terrifying. Like I, I wanted to avoid it at all cost because I already have compromised lungs and that issue already affects my ability to hike, my ability to spend time at elevation, my ability to summit certain peaks. So it wasn't necessarily you know, I was following the rules. I was just protecting myself. Um, that said, in that same time frame, my buddy Brian and I hiked through, uh, we did this loop called the North Lake to South Lake Loop, which goes through Evolution Valley and in a big section of the John Muir Trail and up over, I think it's Bishop Pass, um, which was a brutal pass. Um, and some sections that we hiked in that were, you know, recommended closed, but weren't like officially closed. And then we also did the return to Tower Peak trip, which, as you know, is a pretty important one to me. Um, so those were big mileage, gnarly hikes that we did with virtually no one else on the trail. Like on the Tower Peak trip, we saw zero humans until we hit the summit. We get all of a sudden randomly at the summit, there's two people just hanging out. And I'm just like, where, where did you come from? Like, did you just drop in on a helicopter? Like, we haven't seen anyone in four days. And all of a sudden we're meeting people at the summit. Um, and then even like on the JMT section of that loop, you know, I, I don't know if you've ever hiked any parts of the JMT or done any sections of the JMT, but it's a relatively crowded trail most of the time. And we saw two or three people per day, which is in, yeah. in GMT terms, that's like nothing. Right. Right. Um, so what's interesting is this is uh, something that we share. I had like dehabilitating asthma for the majority of my life and was basically told that I just like had quote weak lungs or bad lungs and I was just not really going to be able to deal with that. And that's actually how I started getting into gym based fitness is I just started going to a gym and running because and this is like uh, mid twenties, right? I was like, okay, I can overcome anything, which kind of fades a little bit as you get older. <laughs> but um, I uh, read this article about uh, Lance Armstrong and how he made his heart like something like five times bigger than the average heart. And I was like, fuck man, if Lance Armstrong can build a really big heart, I can build really strong lungs. Um, and so like, what's interesting is uh, I had similar fears, but as you pointed out, like there was very few people out there. And so that's what felt really exciting to me is it felt like this safe place, both physically and emotionally, right? Like I had this place where I could process because I could be out there and not afraid of anything. So there was nobody on the trail. Um, but I also brought like a gator and everything to be safe during those times too. Right. Um, right. But uh, 
but I digress. I digress. Okay, <laughs> back to back to it. Okay, so uh, first point: convenience. So you happen to have trail access really, really close by. Um, a lot of folks don't. So like. For me, I don't train exclusively because I want to go do adventures, but it is part of it. And I can be in a gym more often than I can be on a fairly significant trail. So in the Bay, I can do three, four, five mile hikes all, all day long, but there's not a lot of really significant ones and there's not an altitude, right? So I can train a lot for those situations to be stronger in those situations and it's not the same experience, but it is better than nothing. So convenience is my first point. Okay. And, and I get that. I see that for sure. And when I first joined like a CrossFit gym, I, I, I despise that term. Um, and the, anyway, that's a different episode. Um, but when I first joined like a, like a traditional, like CrossFit style gym, my only goal was to get into shape to summit Mount Whitney. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. So I am what most people would consider fat. Um, and it's funny when people see me out on the trail because it's like, here's this big fat dude hiking 20, 25 miles a day, you know, and people there's a stigma around being heavier where that people equate being fat to not being fit. And I am absolutely fit and I am fitter than people who weigh significantly less than me. And I can, my body is capable of more things than a lot of people I know whose, you know, BMI is, is perfect. Um, Definitely. And so for me doing Whitney, um, I, I wasn't fit when we decided we were going to climb that. I definitely wasn't. And so I wanted to train and, and get stronger. And, and I definitely felt the benefits of that. I mean, like my, my body shape changed and, and I got considerably stronger. But when I started to get out onto the trails not as much of that translated into being a better hiker as I wanted it to, if that makes sense. Interesting. Okay. All right. So I, I love that. What, so when you translated that into the trail, was that on Whitney or was that previous to Whitney? It was on the training heights leading up to Whitney. Okay. Um, but, but some on Whitney too, it's, it's hard it's hard to make the distinction there because when, when I realized that the things I was doing in the gym weren't giving me the results I hoped for on the trail, I started hiking more and going to the gym. So as far as my fitness level specific to Whitney, I, I don't know how much of that was from doing these like cross training exercises and how much of that was the hikes that I did in addition to the cross-training exercises? Right, because in these types of situations, you don't really have, uh, you have variable data, right? Like if you are hiking and you're training, then which one is contributing the most? And like, the only way you could get that data is if you were like, 
I'm going to do absolutely nothing. And you got that, right? Like you ended up going without any gym and, and experiencing that you haven't, I don't think you've done it where you did exclusively gym. I still think that that would be a bad idea. (laughs) Yeah, no, I, I definitely think that's a bad idea. I, and, and I know that there's probably other fitness trainers listening to this podcast and, and other, you know, professionals listening to this podcast who are pulling their fucking hair out when they hear me say, like, I just don't see so my my only reason for going to a gym and my only reason for doing any, you know, training or, or workout is, is to be a better hiker. That's the only thing I care about. Like, I'm, I'm about to turn 50. I want to be hiking into my sixties and into my seventies and into my eighties. And so like, I don't have fitness goals that aren't related to being on the trail. And I know that that's an unusual situation. You know, you, most people want to lose weight. Most people want to be more visually fit, more aesthetically pleasing. And like, all I care about, like, from the moment I wake up to the moment I go to sleep is being on the trail. That's, that's the only thing that I would go to a gym for. It's the only thing that I would exercise for. And so I found the handful of movements that do translate. Um, so it, it, at home in my own garage, you know, I do a lot of jump roping. I do planks. I do crunches. I do push-ups. Uh, I work a lot on like core strength because so much of backpacking happens in your core. Um, I do step ups and step downs and like goblet squats and things like that, but they're all low weight, higher volume because those are the things that I've noticed just through trial and error that the more of that I do, the easier it is to hike uphill. The more of this exercise I do, the easier it is to hike downhill. The more I jump rope, the more endurance I have to go, you know, when I first started backpacking, 20 miles was a whole trip. That was three days. And now, you know, 10 or 12 years into this and, and being older and being a little bit fatter, um, 20 miles is a day, you know, that's trailhead to campsite. And then I do it again the next day and the next day and the next day. And so the things that I have found that work and in particular, like the step ups and step downs um, and the goblet squats, I, I try to do two, three times a week because those are the things that I've seen direct results. Like I've seen that translate into feeling better on the trail. Yeah. And I don't want to in any way negate your experience. What's interesting is that I've had the opposite experience. I grew up backpacking. I grew up backpacking all through my whole life. And when it wasn't until I started going to the gym that I started to really enjoy it as fucked up as that sounds like there were a lot of aspects of backpacking I enjoyed before, but it was so hard and it was so hard on my body that it, was challenging to enjoy because it hurt really, really a lot. Um, And I often felt that I was weak or failing because other people may or may not have been stronger than me or faster than me or whatever. And my family is absolutely wonderful, but um, they, they do not pander 
So uh, if you don't keep up and that sucks for you and you decide to talk about how much that sucks for you, you're just put at the back and nobody wants to hear it, right? Like <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't like a situation where we all went a lot slower to accommodate this. It was like, you fucking keep up. And if you're going to whine about it, then you can walk 10 feet behind us. Um, so like, it wasn't really until I got older that and I started training that I started to experience like, oh, I can climb up this mountain and it's not even hard and it's really fun. And uh, when I started to make that, uh, that experience um, happen was, was the convergence of, of strength uh, and, and energy systems, which I'll go into in just a second, um, and lung capacity. So like hearkening back to that, that serious, quote, weak lung situation that I had dealt with uh, basically from like sixth grade forward um, up until my early 20s. Uh, I basically thought of myself as somebody who could never run, who could never bike, who could not do these bigger uh, exercise movements. So getting back into things um, with a stronger uh, stronger body and the ability to breathe more easily, it's like a huge, huge, huge deal. And as you might imagine, uh, circling back to the freediving thing, that takes it to the next level, right? Um, so, so I wanted to talk a little bit about energy systems, but I'm monologuing. So I want to give you a chance to respond to that before I jump into it. Um, yeah, I, I, I think, and and I think maybe that maybe this is like kind of a disclaimer we should have had at the beginning of the episode. Like everyone's experience is going to be different. Of what, course. what works for you may not necessarily work for me. And, and the way that I quote unquote train to hike is I go hike. And, and maybe that's not going to work for everybody. And, and maybe, maybe it's just not really working for me. And I don't know, like maybe there's an easier, better, less painful way that I just don't know about. So maybe I'm completely wrong, but that said, I mean, everyone's experience is going to be different and what works for one person may not work for everyone across the board. And that's like, when people ask me, and I, and I get this question quite often, oh, how do you train for a hike? How do you train for a hike? Oh, my, my gut instinct is just, just go hike, just fucking go do it. Um, but I've taught myself over, over the years that like, well, okay, well, what I do is I go for a hike. Um, that may not necessarily work for you. You might have to find a different route. So I, I think it's, it's interesting, but not surprising that your experience specific to being fit for backpacking was so drastically different than mine. Well, okay. So, so I did want to touch on um, an, another point before I talk about energy systems. And that is that the majority of what I do as a coach is actually not coach people to be aesthetic or lose weight. Right. So those are the two, the two things you were talking about people being in the gym for the majority of what I train people to do is be better at what they do. Um, so I have a basketball player, I have, you know, I have people with different sports or different things that they're into ultra runners, things like that, and figuring out how to make somebody better at the thing that they want to do is what I feel really like one of the things that I feel really passionately about. A lot of it is I want to be strong so that I can do this other thing. And I'm like, okay, well, I'll create strength and we'll make it for that specific thing. And I don't think CrossFit is very good at that. I think CrossFit is just not the right tool 
um, for that particular thing, right? It'll make you fitter. It'll make you probably leaner because it's really hard and calorically taxing. And Metcons will stay in your metabolism for 24-ish hours because it's not steady state and a variety of other physiological things. But I don't think it's really going to impact your ability to do something, to do, to do the thing you want to do. So that was in part why I left the gym that I was working out at. Um, there were a lot of other issues. There was too. a lot of other, it was, <laughs> it was, yeah, it, it started out as this really great inclusive place and it slowly became less and less inclusive, which was a big part of why I wanted to leave because if, if friends of mine from marginalized groups didn't feel comfortable there, I didn't want to be there. Um, but specific to the training and the fitness aspect of it, it always felt to me like the coaches there were training me to just be better at CrossFit. And that was, I, did, I had no interest in that. Like, I don't give a shit. I don't want to be, I don't, I don't need the ability to string together a hundred kipping pull-ups. I don't need, you know, I, I don't need to know my best time on a rowing Metcon or whatever. Like, I, I don't care at all. Like none of that adds value to my life. Um, and so that, I got really disinterested in it really quickly because I felt like every day at the gym, I was just training to be better at the gym. And, and to me, I wanted to go to the gym to be better at all the shit I do when I'm not at the gym. Right. And like, you know, Okay, so this is where I stop myself from going on a long rant. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I'll just like, like throw a couple of little key points here and we'll circle back to what we actually want to talk about. Um, a lot of coaches want their athletes to make them look good and CrossFit coaches often are really bad about this in that they want you to be really good at CrossFit because then they have lots of really good CrossFitters that they trained. And it takes two days to get a CrossFit certification. You walk in uh, and you walk out with a fucking certification after you pass a written test. That does not qualify you to teach anybody anything. So that's point one and point two. Point three is my last one. And that is CrossFit typically only wants you to be better at CrossFit, um, which I don't blame it for. Um, basketball doesn't really want you to be great at football. Um, hockey training, I'm sure doesn't really translate super well into rugby, but in my experience, CrossFit is, is really good if you um, are a busy person who wants fitness in a small package, if you are an incredibly social person um, and you want fitness to be incredibly social, and if you want to be really, really good at CrossFit. Um, that's kind of like, that's, that's my thing with CrossFit. So like I coach sort of CrossFit style, I guess, in a functional kind of way in a lot of ways, but like I think that like the whole concept of I pull, uh, I pull a random workout out every day and in 365 days, however many of those you take rest days, please take rest days y'all. Um, but like in a year's worth of time, those will add up to a whole lot of functional fitness for anything that you want to do, the unknown and the unknowable. And I'm like, no, it kind of just makes it so that I can do 95 snatches as quickly as I possibly can. <laughs> so I will say, uh, cause we, we've talked quite a bit of shit about CrossFit um, and get back into the good part. <laughs> and deservedly so. 
I think, but just from my personal experience, if CrossFit works for you, keep doing it and, and don't listen oh, to me. Maybe I'm an idiot. Um, but I, I can say that my early gym experience before things went south, you know, I, I was very open and very communicative with my coaches. Like, yo, this is the thing I want to be good at. This is what I want to do. And so they would get into the habit. These are the, the earlier coaches before the whole coaching staff changed over. They'd be like, hey, today's workout is in your wheelhouse. Like, this is something I really want you to focus on because this is going to translate to hiking. And so I knew like on those days, like, okay, I really have to send this. Like, this is the workout that I really have to crush and then on the other days where it was just like, yeah, this one's probably not that big of a deal for you. We're almost like partial rest days. Like I would still do the workout and I would still give it my best effort. Um, you know, the, the, the effort I was capable of at that moment, but it wasn't the same as like, like if we were doing like a complex of like deadlifts and step-ups, cause that those two movements translate pretty directly to hiking uphill and so it was kind of cool in the first year or so of going to that gym where it was just like the coach would pull me aside and be like hey this is this is your day like really go above and beyond on this day and then tomorrow when we're doing this other stuff then you can relax a little bit but today this is this is exactly what you want and and I liked that aspect of it and I think that's what kept me at the gym for as long as it did because I am fiercely loyal to a fault. And even when stuff started going south and it started to feel like, okay, you just send it every day because this workout is going to lead to this workout. It's going to lead to this workout. It's going to lead to this workout. Um, and none of it maybe translates into what you want to do outside of the gym. And there was, there was like a, like a really visceral shift in the coaching style where it went from, we want to help you be, a better hiker and we want to help this person be a better BMX writer. And we want to help this person be a better basketball player to, we want everyone to be yeah, super. I mean, the first part is really incredible coaching and I'm glad that you got that. Like, I'm really, really grateful that you got that. Um, I am not necessarily talking shit on CrossFit. I just recognize the boundaries of it. Like I competed in CrossFit in between powerlifting and weightlifting. It was a great experience. Um, I still do CrossFit workouts, even named workouts on a regular basis. Like I love CrossFit. Um, I just think that it is, it is really good for the things that it's really good at. And it's not really good at the other things that it's not really good at. And I think that it's important to know those things, right? Like it's important to not be like CrossFit is the ultimate fitness, which many fitness modalities love to say that they are, but CrossFit seems like they really like to call it the end all be all more than anything else have, ever has. Like powerlifting is like, nah, we make you really good at squat bench and deadlift and nothing else. You know what I mean? And like CrossFit is like, you can do anything yeah, oh yeah, with absolutely. this. And like, you know, they do prove that on a fairly regular basis at the games. They have shooting and swimming and fucking running and whatever and and snatching and muscle ups and all these things and and you see the athletes fail and succeed in in their own form but i just don't think that it you know annie and a lot of the named workouts are going to make you particularly good at any endurance thing right um and 
So, so that, that is a segue back to what I was going to talk about. And that's, we have a tendency when we think about training one thing for the other to think about movements. And I think that that's incredibly important, but um, a diversity of energy systems is really, really important too. And when we do one thing exclusively, we often do it at the detriment to the other. And that can be good and that can be bad. I happen to be a coach that thinks that a diversity is better. So even my, yeah, we'll make you good at squat bench, deadlift and nothing else. My power lifters, they still do Metcons. They still do accessories. I make them functional, even though that sport doesn't demand it. Um, I happen to think that if you are more, if you have better conditioning, that you're going to be able to push through a heavy squat for longer. So that's a, that's science that I've translated in, in that way. And other coaches have translated it in other ways. This is my particular opinion. Um, when you are hiking, you're mainly using low twitch muscle fibers, basically like any endurance, uh, sorry, slow twitch muscle fibers, basically any endurance. When you're just going slowly for longer, that's what you're using. And so you've got your aerobic, your lactic, and your anaerobic energy systems. We're not really going to talk about the middle. We're really going to talk about aerobic and anaerobic. Heads up, I'm probably going to fuck those words up a couple of times because for some reason we decided to make aerobic <laughs> and anaerobic the opposite of each other and they sound exactly the same. Um, so we spend like the majority of the time in, um, in an aerobic state, but it is inevitable at any point, if we challenge our systems long enough, we're gonna end up in an anaerobic state. And what we train typically in the gym, at least what I train, what strength is, is an anaerobic system. So if you exceed your aerobic system, which you're going to on the trail, and you drop into your anaerobic system, having the diversity of the ability to go into that system means that you can recover both faster because your anaerobic system is harder to recover, right? So when your bigger muscles start to have to fatigue, that is much harder than recovering from a short run, right? So if we have to do something like climb a super gnarly mountain, we're dropping into our anaerobic system. We're going to recover from that faster if we build bigger, stronger muscles. That means we, less, we create less fatigue. We also create a system where our bodies are better at, produce, or at uh, processing the waste that we create in, within our system, or sorry, within our muscles. Um, but we also don't create as much waste. So we're just a more efficient machine when it comes to both aerobic and anaerobic, if we train them both, which is back to my point, right? So if we do the long hikes, if we do the trail time, but we also do the heavy squats and the multiple heavy squats, then we have a diversity of systems that we can drop into at any time, right? So that, that's one way we can use it. Anaerobic also gives us our really intensely aerobic, or sorry, uh, explosive. So if we train our ability to jump and uh, and have agility and have the strength to have that agility, then you might be able to get out of a situation that you get into on the trail without as much problem as if you did not train. So things like box jumps, agility work, footwork, placing your feet and making sure your feet, your brain know where your feet are, are really, really clutch too. So it's not always about lifting something heavy in the gym. Sometimes it's about uh, what I call two foot, one foots, um, where you jump 
you touch something with your foot, you jump down, maybe do another movement and then touch another thing with your other foot. And this way, we're gonna really have a good understanding of our brain to foot connection. And so now you've just fallen on a steep slope and you're struggling and you're scrambling. Your brain knows where your feet are and you have the ability to push off and create explosive movement. That might prevent a serious injury. So diversity of systems and diversity of skill sets and the brain-body connection that we develop, it, I think that those are really translatable into being better on the trail. Okay, yeah, I think, <laughs> I think you're winning me over to your side. I do. Uh, after hearing that, I feel like maybe I, I've been wrong. Um, to a, to a, to a degree, to a degree. Um, so, and this is completely anecdotal and there's no scientific basis for this whatsoever, but I did notice on the Ruby Crest trip that I just came back from, because I haven't been able to hike much because of the fires and, and the trail closures and things like that. I haven't been out on the trail as often. Um, in particular, the uphill sections were just super gnarly. And now in that time frame, you know, even though I haven't been on the trail, I was still doing my little garage home workouts with the step ups, weighted step ups, um, pistol squats and, and a lot of kettlebell work and stuff like that. So the only factor that was missing in my personal training was being on the trail. And I, I think there's a twofold issue here. Number one, the Ruby Crest Trail is very difficult and it, it's harder than anything else I've done this year. So I think that was an immediate factor. Even if I'd been hiking the whole time, this trail would have just been harder than, than anything else I've done this year. But there was a point on the first day and there were multiple contributing factors to this, uh, the biggest one being a lack of sleep. But there was a point about six miles from my campsite, so I'm roughly 11 miles into my hike, where my quads were like literally vibrating. They were so tired. And I have experienced that on longer trails before, but it's usually like at mile 25, not mile 16, you know? Um, and again, the only thing that was missing from my personal training routine at that point was being on the trail. I mean, it's interesting that you say that. It's like, I, I mean, I don't know what your, your programming is for your like little garage stuff or whatever. Um, I think that there's no matter what you do, if you stop training, you're going to experience a decrease in performance, right? So like your training is being on the trail. If you decrease the amount that you're on the trail, the next time you come back to it, you're gonna experience a decrease in performance. But like, and maybe I'm being overly indulgent here, but I'm, and please stop me if I am. Um, the, the, the sleep issue is something that, people like a lot of us don't like to 
put very much importance on, mainly because it's not very controllable. Um, I happen to use a significant amount of drugs to sleep, so I have created a control there, but it decreases my performance because drugs don't let you sleep very well. So it's the only way you can create performance is to bring in an external source. But when we are running on incredibly low sleep or no sleep at all, we are running on different not to just fucking say the same thing over and over and over, but we're running on different energy systems. Our body is running on adrenaline and whatever external drugs you put in, usually caffeine, right? Um, and if we're running on that, then we have a lot less access to the uh, ability to push through other energy systems that we would normally be able to have. Right. So like you're not processing waste as well. You're not uh, you're not doing a lot of the things physiologically that you need to to take on a big challenge. And so just just the lack of being on the trail from the fires and the lack of sleep could very easily fuck over uh, your ability to perform at the level that you usually do. So what was really weird about it on this trip? And, and again, I've hit that level of exhaustion before and pushed through it. And that's how I've gone from being a five mile a day hiker to a 10 mile a day hiker to a 20 mile a day hiker to now an almost 30 mile a day hiker, depending on the terrain. Um, I, I've hit that level of exhaustion when I've hit that outer limit, you know, like when I was on the cusp of becoming a 20 mile a day hiker, I would hit that 18, 19 mile a day mark for the first time. And my body was just like, no, we're not, uh, uh stop it. Just lay down and go to sleep right now, asshole. What are you doing? Um, but this was different. This was, I mean, I, I felt, I felt sick to my stomach. Um, my, like I say, my, my quads in particular were like visibly vibrating. I could see it like through my compression shorts uh, like twitching, if, if that makes sense. Um, and I wasn't thinking as clearly, like I knew, okay, yo, you need to stop and you need to drink water and you need to eat and you need to chill out for like an hour. Like I knew that and I just didn't do it. And so I, I took this six miles that normally I would have hiked in two and a half to three hours and it took me almost five wow to walk to walk this six miles and uh, and at this point this was pre-injury like the injury happened a couple of days later down the road it was this it was a cluster of a trip like it, <laughs> it it started really poorly it got super awesome in the middle and then it ended really poorly um but it, this was a level of exhaustion I've never felt. And full disclosure, I had maybe two hours of sleep the night before, before I tried to walk 17 miles. Um, I was doing a really good job of staying hydrated. I was doing a really good job of replenishing electrolytes. And I was doing a really good job of eating. That, that day, from start to finish that day, I probably ate 4,500 calories over the span of like 16 miles. Um, but something else was happening. Like, and, and I'm positive that 90% of it was lack of sleep. But I think that other 10% was the lack of trail time leading up to this trip. Yeah, yeah. I mean, lack of training will fuck you for sure. 
Um, and that's a really, really great segue to, um, I think another really huge benefit to having gym training or strength training, whatever the fuck we want to call it. We should have come up with a good terminology. I like strength training. But now we're like an hour in, so uh, we're here now, um, is uh, injury prevention and recovery. So uh, prevention I call prehab um, and rehab, right? So for me, I have had a number of injuries from a variety of sources. I am amazing at injuring myself, actually. Uh, it's like- You uh, and me really, both. I am skilled. I am very skilled. Uh, but um, for this is this is one example, right? So- um, January of 2019, one of my athletes dropped uh, 340 pounds uh, and it fell about 18 inches free fall onto the top of my legs. Um, and it didn't break anything, which is kind of miraculous. Um, at the time I was 5'3", I'm still 5'3", um, but uh, <laughs> I was like 5'3 and about 105 pounds. Um, so I didn't have a lot of meat on my bones to pad that shit and somehow nothing broke except for like a lot of blood vessels and a lot of muscle tissue fiber and a lot of, pro a lot of problems physiologically, but, um, no bones broken. Um, and I have spent a lot of the time since that healed enough for me to move, um, healing from the problems that I caused myself after that. So when my, like, I still have dents in my quads from that. And, um, when I healed enough to start getting back outside, it took months and months. And of course I was driving totally crazy because I couldn't walk. So I couldn't go outside. I couldn't do anything I wanted to do. So when I could, I started moving a lot. And in fact, I picked up uh, longer distance running at this time. Um, and so I ran so that I could get as far out in the wilderness as possible, as quickly as possible. And during that time, I actually changed my gait very significantly. And I had a lot of Vargas, so my knees would collapse slightly. A quick question. Did, 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 was the gait change intentional or was that uh, a side effect of the injury? A side effect of the injury, yeah. So, um, so the gait change was because of uh, like a small pain issue. I only know this because this is what physical therapists have told me since my amazing team of physical therapists that made it so that I could get be where I am now. Um, because of that gait change, um, I essentially atrophied the insides of like the very small muscles inside of my glutes that stabilize my knees. And I did this at the same time as I took up long distance fucking running. Um, and so it took me a, a lot of months, like six months of uh, PT work in the gym to rehab my knees to the point where they can deal with what, um, to lead me into my next knee injury is really what happened. Um, but like to rehab them completely back to being able to do summits and be able to do longer trails. Cause for a long time I couldn't, the wear and tear just didn't work because the muscles in my hips weren't stabilizing my knees. So like, if you know you have an issue, or if you do, if you create an issue and you have to fix it, um, the gym can be a really good place to do that. Um, the trail is not always a safe place to do that, right? And that that's where I'm at right now with this most recent injury that I that I just got this last weekend. Um, I am I, I canceled two backpacking trips in in the wake of the injury, which. I mean, you know, you know me and you know how much I love being on the trail. Like canceling a trip is devastating to me emotionally. Um, and so my current rehab program, because uh, it is a knee injury, 
Um, so uh, a lot of stretching, a lot of yoga, a um, lot of just uh, unweighted movements or like air squats, but very slow. Um, Let's circle back after this, by the way. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, so I, I mean, I get where you're coming from with training being a more effective rehabilitation than hiking. Because if, if I were, I should be hiking today. Like I, I had another trip planned this weekend, but I knew if I went out on the trail in the condition I'm in now, I would just exacerbate the injury. And so in, instead of doing that, I'm, I'm at home and doing yoga. Right. Which sucks, but it is what it is. Right. But like, it's really just being able to control your environment. And when you have something like a knee or foot or ankle injury, being able to not exacerbate that injury at the same time as making it stronger is sometimes just requires a more controlled environment and like that can be that can be created in indoors or that can be created with strength training right um and that leads me to my last point which is kind of a two-parter and um in the gym specifically with like weightlifting and barbell movements this doesn't really count so much for like dumbbell kettlebell stuff um though that's not entirely true but it'll make sense in a second so like when you have a safe controlled environment you can push your limits in a way you can't do if you're out on the trail so like i am a very strong proponent for just do right like even though I do think that the gym can be a really important tool, I love that what you say to people is just go be out on the trail. That's what I do. Just go be out on the trail. Because I think most of the people who are asking, how do you train? They're looking for a three-month plan to get them on the trail. And you and I both know that just fucking choosing a trail and going is the best way to start, not training to become quote unquote strong enough, right? Like take on a one mile, take on a three mile, take on a five mile, just start chipping away at it. I think it's a way, way better way to do it. I think that the whole, like, I need to prepare to do something is given a lot more weight than it deserves in our culture. And like, just doing can be so fucking valuable. But in the gym, once you're already somebody like you, who already knows how to tackle the trail, you can do something like a heavy back squat or a heavy squat or sorry, a heavy snatch or something like that. And you can be like, okay, I don't know if I can do this thing. It's kind of scary ah, and go for it. And then test your limits in that way in a much safer way, right? Like I can be like, I don't know if I'm going to be, I actually did this. I don't know if I'm going to be able to tackle Lassen in this bordering on snowstorm. The fucking sky is getting very, very dark. I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this. That's a thing you should actually just not do. And I did it, by the way. <laughs> so that, um, that's a thing I would absolutely do and have done. Oh, oh, no, no, no. This was like, this became like a lethal snowstorm, like very quickly. And we ended up actually jogging down a lot of the mountain because it was like a very serious problem. Um, a ranger actually came up and was like, uh, everyone is needing to leave now. <laughs> right? <laughs> oh, yeah. So just, just to piggyback on that, just real quick. And this is. I, I cannot stress this enough. I am not bragging. I do not recommend anyone else do this. <laughs> the number of times I have been the tallest thing on a summit in a thunderstorm would 
absolutely shock you. Like I couldn't count it on two hands and two feet. I have been the tallest thing in the worst possible situation more times than I care to admit. And it's stupid. It's (laughs) terrifying. And it is absolutely exhilarating all at the same time. Oh yeah. Fuck yeah. Definitely. 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 Um, But I am, I am not somebody who knows snow is not something that I know well, and I should not be in a situation that is severe in snow. Light snow is okay. I can tackle that. But a snowstorm at serious altitude on a mountain is not a very good place for me to be. That's fair. That's fair. (laughs) I mean, I'm, I'm the kind of guy that goes out to those things on purpose. Like I have, I have gear specific Exactly. Or that situation, like I have a tent that's specifically designed to stay up in that exact situation. I have snowshoes, crampons, ice axe, like. You know, what's weird is I have all that stuff too. I don't have ice axe. I don't, I don't have some of it. You're better prepared than me, but I have a lot of snow gear. Um, it wasn't supposed to be snowing. <laughs> I was not wearing, I was wearing a North Face um, rain uh, shell and a sweatshirt and leggings it was not supposed to snow. It was sunny and warm. And then we were uh, we were like a mile and a half up Lassen, um, which by the way, we had to walk 14 miles to get to the trailhead because they closed it for a rock fall that didn't exist. I fucking walked that road. There was no rocks. Um, and, uh, and when we got there, the sky started to turn dark. It started to rapidly, rapidly drop in uh, in temperature. And I was like, this just feels bad. This feels like maybe I should, I should not be here. So we turned around and by the time we made it to where the ranger found us, we had already very much decided to, that was past running, past everything else. Um, and I like remember looking back up at the mountain being like, I could have died if my insanity had been like, keep going. Um, but I think that this is like a really good episode that we should talk about at some point. And that's like, where are your limits and how do you know where they are? Yeah, I, w- I want to circle back just real quick. That feeling that you had that told you absolutely you should turn around. Everybody who's ever been on a trail anytime has had that that moment. And some of us more than once. and. For everybody listening, listen to that every time. Like if, if you hit a point when you're, you're out in the backcountry and your brain just goes, fucking nope, it's right. Yes. Yes. Thank you for that. Um, and fuck, also, this is like an episode of Perfect Segways. Okay, so the last one is um, that I think... There is a significant amount of vulnerability that comes with different identities. And I think that that has to do sometimes with, uh, uh, sorry, it, it sometimes interacts with your desire or ability to do things safely. So like if you're a femme individual, I know that some people of color have negative experiences in outdoor situations. I know disabled folks do. And I know that sometimes that can create a vulnerability and discomfort that makes it so that being out more doesn't feel as good or maybe isn't even possible. Um, And if that's the case, 
I think that you can use an augmented mix of being on trails that do feel safe or pushing that vulnerability, whatever situation you happen to be in. Um, for me, it's pushing that vulnerability, right? Like I don't want to feel that vulnerable as like a small femme person, but it is still there, right? Like if I pass a solo man on a trail, it makes me nervous. It makes me jumpy. It makes me anxious in a way that I haven't seen in men. And I know that there's different experiences with that. So my last point was just that like sometimes augmenting with controlled environments can help you be fit enough to hit the trails when you get to them. To piggyback on that a little bit, I know like I I come from a place of absolute privilege. I'm I'm a white cis guy. Right. So very rarely am I made to feel uncomfortable on the trail. And more often than not, I am the source of the discomfort, whether I mean to be or not. It just it happens. I'm I'm a big dude. I'm covered in tattoos. Um I look like I fucking live in the mountains. I have this giant beard, you know? Um, and I try to be really aware of that to, you know, when I'm, when I'm passing a, a more femme person or, or a person of color on the trail, or if I'm out hiking with a hiking partner who is femme or POC, you know, I try to be aware of just, just how much space I physically take up. And there's not a lot I can, necessarily do a, about i mean i'm just i'm big I, I just, i'm a big guy i i physically take up a lot of room um so i try to approach those situations to where i'm not vocally and and mentally taking up as much space because there's nothing i can do about the amount of physical space that this body takes up so i try to the best of my ability. And I, and I hope you've seen that on the hikes that you and I have done together where, you know, I'll trail behind you. I'll listen more. Um, if you have questions, I'm like right there with the answers, hopefully. Um, but yeah, so I, I understand even though I will never experience that level of discomfort, I understand it. Yeah. I, mean, I think you do a really good job of it. Um, I, I think and this is a this is a tangent, but like I think that there are like some really easy tools for like especially larger men to make folks who are not larger, specifically white men, on trails and in outdoor environments feel more safe. But like what's wild is that it's really just not being a dick. Like, right? Like majority of people you encounter are. It it, it is so much easier to not be a dick. Like it takes effort to be rude like that. You have to try really hard, you know, right. and, uh, anecdotal example, my buddy, Brian and I were on a section of the John Muir trail and this fairly petite, um, ranger came up and asked us to see our permits. And we were both just immediately like, Oh yeah, sure. Let me take my pack off. Here's our permit. Do your thing. And when the interaction, you know, the official interaction was done, she was like, wow, thank you. And I was like, for what? She's like, you have no idea how much attitude I get from people that look like you two, you know, cause I'm, you know, I'm 105 pounds in this little ranger outfit and, you know, here comes some 
200 pound plus dude, you know, and I have to be in this official capacity. I have to ask for your permit. I have to know that you're supposed to be on this trail and I'll get so much lip and, and so much pushback from a lot of these people. And both of you were just like, yep, here you go. Here's your permit. And it just like, I thought about that a lot for the rest of the hike. Cause we were out for like two more days after that interaction and it weighed on me kind of heavy, like, like, yo, that's her job. Like she, she's out there alone in the backcountry for months at a time. And the only thing she has to do when she's out there is ask people for their permit. So just, just show the permit. Don't be a dick about it. Just like, oh yeah, I have it. Here it is. Like, why is that an issue? Right. Um, so yeah, like men feel, seem to feel entitled to uh, commenting and interacting in ways that are abrasive towards folks. And I've never really understood why, because like, if I pass a guy of any size on the trail of any whatever you look like. If I pass a solo dude, that's the scariest thing I'm going to do. A solo dude or maybe a group of a belligerent young dudes. Um, but that doesn't really happen that often. Usually it's like a solo dude. And if there's a solo dude, I haven't seen somebody in two days and I pass somebody and they look at me and they just stare me down and they don't say anything. I'm going to think about that shit for the rest of the time I'm on that trail, right? Like if you just like smile and nod, that would be great. Um, but uh, a lot of guys do things like uh, comment on what you physically look like. Um, complimenting isn't effective in this current situation. So like if you're a guy and you just want to compliment somebody and just don't do it, just like maybe don't. Um, so I've had guys be like, oh, you know, you have big legs. That's great. And I'm like, okay. Or they'll be like, those are short shorts. And I'm like, okay. Don't comment on people. Just say hi and walk by. It's a really, it's, it's like so much simpler. Like if you say hi, it takes so much less effort than commenting on somebody's body. Yeah. And I, I worry about this sometimes. Um, again, again, being a bigger white cis male, I, I am concerned with how I make other people feel. And I'm also super chatty, especially when I'm on the trail and especially like if I haven't seen another human being in 48 hours and I see you coming down the opposite direction on the trail, like I'm going to want to talk to you. Okay. But can I stop you? Because I have known you for kind of a long time now and I can't imagine at any point that conversation is going to look like, Hey, so you're really pretty. Um, how long have you been out here? That's not a good, that's not a good segue to put together. Right. You're going to be like, whoa, you got the Osprey fucking whatever pack. Like, that's interesting. I didn't choose that one for this reason. Let's talk about that. That's cool to me. So my approach to it, and I would hope that anybody listening who is of similar size and, and presence as I have um, I mean, it, it's, it's hard for people, I think, to imagine, but you know what I look like. I mean, I'm, I'm 235 pounds. I'm six feet tall. I have a beard down to my collarbone. Um, and I have tattoos from neck to ankle. So if that paints a picture, 
you know, <laughs> um, my typical approach when I hiking up and this, this goes across the board for if I see people who are in similar size and shape to me, if I see people who are smaller than me, if I see people who are, or like visibly femme, um, I get, I step off the trail and I say, hi. And if they say nothing, cool. Okay. You just keep going on and I'm, I'm going to go my direction and you go your direction. If they say hi back, then I'll be like, Oh, how long have you been out on the trail? And then if they seem like visibly open to conversation, then I'll start, you know, nerding out about their gear or their, or whatever, you know, but I'll, I'll always smile and I'll always say hello. And then whatever the reaction is from that person dictates the rest of the interaction. And if the rest of the interaction is literally nothing, cool. If we hang out and, and end up taking our packs off and, and share a snack together, equally cool. Like I never get, I've, I've seen people do this and it, it trips me out. And I actually talked to a guy about it on a section of the PCT. We, we both just coincidentally were walking the same direction at the same time on the same section of trail at roughly the same speed. And a woman came the other direction by herself. I said, hi. She said, nothing. Dude said, hi. She said, nothing. I kept going. And uh, I think had we not been together at the end, just in that moment that he would have said more to her, but instead he walked with me and like complained the whole time that she didn't say anything back. And I was like, yeah, man, do you, do you see what we look like? <laughs> like I don't know about you, but I've been on the trail for four days. I smell really bad. I'm a big person just in general. My, my, my presence, it can be intimidating just because of how I'm built. And, and I smell really bad. Like I've been on the trail for four <laughs> days. Like I wouldn't fucking talk to us either, dude. And he's oh, well, blah, 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 you know, and calling her misogynistic names and just being a jerk about it. And so I, turned on the afterburners and I was like, yo, I'm going to, I'm just going to get away from this fool. I'm just going to go, you know, cause I can for a bigger guy and, and for an any size guy, like I can go three miles an hour for six hours and it's fine. And not a lot of other people I meet on the trail, you know, in the, in the capacity that I hike, can do that. I know there are, there's through hikers and ultralight hikers and fast packers and all this stuff that would leave me in the dust. But, but for somebody my size and my shape in the situations I put myself in, I'm usually the fastest person on the trail. And if I'm not the fastest, I stop the least. And so I just got like annoyed with this dude and I was just like cranked it out and I never saw him again. But in the back of my head, I was just like, man, maybe I, maybe I should have stayed and tried to educate him a little bit better, but like, I don't know. At some point that's not my responsibility. And, and at some point those people aren't going to listen, but it was, it was a weird interaction because, you know, she walked by, I said, Hey, nothing. And that was the end of it for me. And it ruined his fucking day. Like the fact that she didn't say hello back, like that, that stayed on his mind for the rest of his trip. 
Right. And I, I think that this is the man, this is the entitlement that I'm talking about, right? Like it doesn't acknowledge anybody else's experience. Like it doesn't acknowledge that the rest of the your life as I'm going to assume that this person that you passed was relatively attractive because that would have made that person want to talk to he want to talk to her. Right. So like there was something there where he like wanted that attention and it didn't take into consideration that she's out there and maybe she doesn't feel hostile in any way. Maybe she's just out there to not have any interaction and she's listening to fucking white noise in her headphones and she doesn't want to break that flow state of being in her head. Maybe she's writing a novel that she's going to write down in her journal when she rests next time and she doesn't want to break that thought. Maybe she just got assaulted on the trail and she's processing that. You have no idea what somebody's experience is and that, that guy felt entitled to her time and her energy, which is, in my opinion, the biggest problem. Like, your reaction is exactly right. Like, being like, hey, I am inviting you into this space. Don't want to be in that space? No problem. You can have your experience exactly how you want your experience, and I'm going to go have a good old time on my own. Like, it's not... I deserve your attention or your energy or your focus of any kind. It's we're both in the same interaction. And like, I think that that is what we need more of because that is acknowledging that we all belong here, right? That like, I, as a woman, don't have to go out of my way to give you energy because you've decided to talk to me, right? That like, I deserve the space to be out there and not talk to anyone just as much as you deserve the space to do that, right? Because I can't imagine a woman being like, hey, on a trail, and then like later being like, that fucking asshole, why didn't he fucking say hi and take his headphones? You know, like, I can't imagine that happening. Um, I'm sure it it could, like, I'm not going to say like, make some generalization about gender necessarily, but like, usually it's men who feel more entitled to, to female energy. And like, I really like that your approach is just to be like, um, here's a non-threatening welcome, hi, and you're invited into conversation if you want. And like me personally, I think that a a casual hey can go a long ways in making you a less threatening person. We we went off kind of on a tangent on this. We started out with health and fitness. This is like a really long episode. Do we want to wrap it up? Yeah, yeah, that's kind of where I was going with this. Um, however, just just real quick to piggyback a little bit on what you said. I think mental fitness ties into what we started the episode on, so I don't think we strayed too far from the path. Okay, 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 I love that. I didn't, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay, uh, three luxury items you would put in your pack. Three luxury items. This is going to be a hard one for me. I'm not going to lie because I do not carry a lot of luxury items. Okay. Uh, Why don't you go first? Okay, I will. But first, I just want to like relate that um, we have alluded to the fact that we're a little bit different, but I like talking about this top, this, this threes. Uh, What were we calling it? Do we have a name for it yet? I don't think we had a name for it. Just three things. Okay. All right. I'm going to call it the trips. Okay. Um, So, uh, I'm really excited that we're going to talk about this because I kind of take the perspective that I'm plenty strong to carry whatever the fuck I want to carry. So like, I'm not stupid about it, but I will pack things because I just want them. 
And you take the perspective that you want to have the lightest load because it makes you the more most efficient that you can. I'm projecting a little bit, but that seems correct. No, that's that's dead on. Like I know I'm strong enough to carry a 50 pound pack. Like I know that. I've done it. I absolutely can. So the way my brain works when I'm packing is like, well, if I can walk 20 miles a day with 35 pounds, can I walk 30 miles a day with 20 pounds? Could I walk 35 miles a day with 15 pounds? And so for me, it's it's about the walk. Right. So so it's funny because your your reaction to this as our as our as our trips was like, fuck, I don't have three. And my response was like, I mean, define luxury. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so um, my first one is apples. Um, and that's so crazy to me. I just, I mean, I've seen you do it, but it still blows my mind. Okay, but the particular trip that you saw me do it was a fucked up trip where he happened to pack <laughs> seven, I believe, which I did not know, but I should have checked the pack form. Um, so I digress, I digress, I digress. Um, I don't normally pack seven apples, but I do pack one for each day because similar to drinking coffee on like a long drive. I really enjoy that. And I know smokers have, have talked about that particular trigger. Walking on a trail and eating like a big crisp honey crisp apple in the sun is like an experience that just makes me so fucking happy. That I don't care that that apple is like a quarter of a pound. So just real quick and then I'll, and then I'll say my thing. Um, the reason I giggle at you when you carry apples is like when you're done eating the apple, like you still have to carry part of that apple. Like you can't, like if, if you're practicing proper, leave no trace, like you're still, you still have some amount of, you know, if you're out for three days and you have three apples at the end of the trip, you have three apple cores. Okay. If you're practicing proper, leave no trace. That's the part that blows me away because it's just like the way I pack food is so that I create the least amount of waste possible so that I have the least amount of shit to carry. Like I don't want, I don't want the stuff I'm consuming to generate more things for me to carry. I mean, that's completely valid. Uh, I have historically burned apple cores, but I've also carried them a lot. And they're a heavy snack and they're heavy trash and they're fucking wonderful. So what's your first one? All right. So really my only one, I'm going to struggle to come up with, with numbers two and three, but my only real luxury item that I carry on every backpacking trip is my Kindle. And typically I'll have it loaded up with uh, a fiction book that I'm reading at the time and then a digital trail guide to whatever area I'm in. Okay, I love that. So my second and actually kind of attached to my third are both uh, media creation tools, um, which I consider a luxury because you don't need them. Um, so I carry uh, a drone where they're allowed. Um, I carry a battery to, the batteries for my drone um, and a battery to charge my phone and my camera. So I carry three separate, no, yeah, three separate. Right now I have my GoPro, it's sort of my DSLR. Um, but I carry three separate media things 
that are all pretty heavy and also space consuming, right? My drone takes kind of a lot of space. It's a really small one, but it needs protection. It can't be on the outside. It can't be smashed. Same with my GoPro. Um, and carrying a battery in and of itself is heavier than either of those two combined. But I need it because otherwise they, they don't work and they're really a lot of heaviness. So I guess, I mean, I care. I don't have a drone. I'm, I'm not a big drone person. Um, no real reason in particular. I just, I hate the sound of them. I, I think that's what it is. Like when I'm out on a trail in an area where drones are allowed and I hear it come in like somebody's doing their thing, uh, I just want to get away from that noise as quickly as possible. So that's why I don't carry one. Really quick, I bought the smallest possible drone. Um, not the smallest possible now, but smallest possible that I knew of then. Um, I recently found this one that's like uh, an inch and a half by an inch and a half, but a GoPro goes on top of it, wild. Um, but the one that I have is really, really small. And a huge reason why I did that is actually because once it's about 10 feet from you, you can't hear it. And it makes me really, 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 really unhappy when people decide to fuck with the noise situation in the woods. Like it's the only place that's really quiet anymore in our world. And so when people are incredibly loud or play music or have like giant drones that are really, really loud, it pisses me off. So I felt really strongly about getting the quietest one I possibly could. Nice. Um, so I, I mean, I carry a ton of camera equipment. I have a Canon M50, I have a GoPro 7, I carry my iPhone 12, which doubles as like a landscape camera. And then I also carry this big anchor battery pack to keep all those things charged. I don't consider those luxury items because I run a YouTube channel. Right. And I couldn't do it without some of those things. Like I've, I have, I've worked the GoPro out of my kit because the iPhone 12 has better image stabilization. So I carry the Canon M50 because I capture better audio with that than I can on the phone. And then I carry the phone for like the kind of dramatic, you know, here's what it would look like. Here's the POV of, of what it would look like if you were walking on the trail. Because the, the iPhone 12, the image stabilization is insane. Like it's, it's the best image stabilization of any camera that I've ever owned. And that's stupid. I will say the GoPro, I have the nine and uh, I'm going to make this incredibly fast because holy shit, we can do an entire episode. We'll hopefully do an entire episode on media, but the uh, image stabilization on the new GoPro is bonkers. It is bonkers. I can swim aggressively in, I can swim as aggressively as I can and it'll look flat. My only complaint about GoPro and the reason I moved it out of my my YouTube uh, creator kit is it has the the infinite focus. And so like with my iPhone, I can mess with the aperture and I can mess with the shutter speed. And so I can get these more artistic uh, cinematic shots that you can't get with the GoPro. Um, Okay, so now it's time for my second one. And I thought of something. And most people are going to laugh at this. Most other backpackers are going to laugh at this because I think this is the thing that most people just carry because you should. But my second quote unquote luxury item is I carry a clean pair of socks just for sleeping in. So I can, I can peel off my dirty, nasty hiking socks, put on fresh, clean ones and 
put those into my sleeping bag. And I, I know, like, I know that's not technically a luxury item because it's just a thing you're supposed to do, but it's as close as I can get because I don't carry a ton of extra stuff. But are they fluffy? They're not fluffy. No, they're just like, uh, I carry these. They're eco socks. They're made of bamboo. Could they be fluffy? I guess they could, <laughs> but, but they're not. <laughs> I carry fluffy socks to sleep in because I can't sleep if my feet are cold. So is, is that your third luxury item or do you have like an actual legit luxury item for your third one? Oh, uh, my third one was my battery. So oh, my second okay. one was my drone okay. and my third one was my battery. Oh, okay. I, I missed that. I thought that was all one package. I mean, it kind of is. I smushed them together because like, I was like, well, I mean, they go together. Like the battery is to charge the drone and the GoPro and everything else. Um, but okay. All right. Third one. So my third, my third one then, and it, this just popped into my head because it's definitely not something you'd need on the trail, but it does make being on the trail better is I carry a uh, vegan doc chart doc. <clears throat> we're going to start that word over again because that did not come out as a word, a vegan dark chocolate candy bar on pretty much every trip. So that, that would be my third luxury item is my chocolate. You carry chocolate. Oh, hell yes. But doesn't it just become soup? Um, I mean, in the summertime, obviously. In, uh, in, in the summertime. Yeah. You could do some creative things, especially if you're carrying a bear can, you can pack it sort of creatively in the center of the can to where it gets less mushy. But by the time I'm ready to eat it, it's at night at, at the campsite. And so it's usually cooled down enough that it's it's not a huge issue. And I'm not above uh, licking the foil either. So I did mention earlier that I'm a fat kid. So. <laughs> I, I, there's no shame. There's no shame in licking the chocolate off of the foil. Uh, well, as a former bikini athlete and a gym owner and a coach, I lick the fucking foil every single time. It's like the <laughs> cupcake wrapper. Like, you can't leave that shit behind. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, I agree. So, in closing, this was a long episode. I, I don't know where, I don't, I don't see the clock, so I don't know where we're at. Um, but, but it's been a while. It's been a, it's been a minute. So uh, thank you guys for hanging in here with us. I hope that this was hella valuable. Yeah, I hope you got some valuable information out of it. And at the very least, I hope uh, that you got some good chuckles at, <laughs> at maybe the silly things that either one of us do on the trail. Oh, uh, so I think like what I, I, I feel like to wrap everything up is like, if you think that training is going to make you um, a through hiker all of a sudden, it's not going to happen. If you think that working out is going to make it so that you will not struggle sometimes on the trail, it's not going to happen. But it can be a useful tool for a variety of reasons. But the end all be all is maybe just get out there and do yeah, I'm actually really surprised by how this, I, I went into this thinking that we were going to be on completely opposite sides and and there's a lot of common ground and I'm really excited about that. Um, where can people find you and all of the things you do? I know you just started a, a YouTube channel for Resilient Strength. I did. I did. Um, we are currently, I shouldn't say we actually, my partner, Brian runs everything on the back end of the business and I can't really claim that I do. So, uh, Brian is making playlists of, uh, specifically movements, 
uh, that can be do, done at home or dumbbell style. Our app has um, 30 minute dumbbell quickies and every single workout that's done on powerlifting or Olympic lifting or any of our strength programs also have dumbbell versions that you can do. So on the YouTube channel, I have all those and he's situating them in playlists so you can just do them bang, bang, bang as their own workout or if you are part of the app. If you wanna sign up for that or you wanna learn more about it, you can find out that and anything else about my gym or what I do at theresiliencestrength.life. It'll never not be entertaining to me that I got that life. Um, and, uh, and if you're interested in what I'm up to, uh, especially like kind of adventurous and whatnot, I am Holly X Resilient on Instagram. And I'm not really on any other social media platforms because it's very overwhelming. There's a lot going on. Um, and like they're all run by Russian and Chinese bots anyway. <laughs> But, uh, but I just posted a really fun series about the uh, free diving adventure we had in Monterey. So if you're interested in that, um, it'll be in my highlights. And uh, if you want to shoot me an email for whatever reason, I'm at theresiliencestrength at gmail.com. What about you? Uh, I'm going to plug one that you forgot because oh, I, I, act I actually really enjoy your uh, Holly Does Nature Instagram. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> I, I, I do too much, I guess. So two things. Um, you can find the gym Instagram and uh, the Holly Does Nature, which is, uh, thank you for saying that, by the way. I started that account exclusively so I could be like, here's a picture of a fern. I don't care if I lose followers over it. I really like this fern. Um, and, uh, and like, it's kind of like my secret, like, pleasure, I guess, where I'm like, yes, I get to do like this macro photography and like whatever. Um, but also I have another podcast uh, called Bowling for Penguins. Um, and we just, I don't know when we're going to release this podcast, um, but I just uh, released a um, roundtable discussion that I'm really proud to have been a part of and excited to show the world uh, on toxic masculinity and what it looks like to build spaces that are inclusive. So uh, on to you. On to me. Uh all of my social media is the same. It's all lost again with Jim. So Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, just type lost again with Jim into the search bar and you will find me. My YouTube channel is pretty small right now, but I'm not super concerned about it. I like to post trip videos. I don't care about posting gear reviews and in the outdoor YouTube universe, that is the exact opposite of what you're supposed to do if you want to build a huge following. So I like to share trip videos and I like to inspire people to get on the trail. So that's the thing I'm going to post. And if that keeps my subscribership on the lower end, but gets more people on the trail, then that's perfect as far as I'm concerned. Your YouTube video is absolutely inspiring. Like I'm not somebody who needs to be inspired really at all. I really need to be inspired to maybe sit down every once in a while. Um, but like your, your videos are interesting in that you show what it's really like to be somewhere. And that makes me be like, oh my God, uh, I need to go there, right? Like recently I found some place that I really want, I was excited about. I found a picture of a place I was excited about. And then you fucking posted a video of it. And I was like, now I really need to go there. Yeah, Finger Lake out by the Middle Palisades. Yes, yes, yes. I remember you, you texted me like right away. After that video came out, you texted me and you're like, yo, where is this? Like, I just saw a picture of this. And I want to go there. And now you've been there. So, yeah, that was really cool. Um, what I try to do with the videos, and I'll keep this very short and then we'll, we'll, we'll close this episode out. 
what I try to do with the videos is make them as point of view as possible. I keep my personal commentary and vlogging aspects of it to a minimum because I want to take people with me. I want people to feel like they've been on the trail with me. So that's the whole point of the channel. So if you, if you are a person who can't get into the Sierras, if you're a person who's never going to hike the Ruby Crest Trail, if you're a person who's never going to be able to through hike the Tahoe Rim Trail, my channel might be perfect for you because you can just sit and watch and hopefully if I've shot it properly and presented it correctly, you'll feel like you were there. So until next time, I have been Jim. And I'm still Holly. <laughs>